You're listening to the Fat Dude Digs Flicks Movie Podcast Network. And now, the Criterion Break. Greetings and salutations, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of the Criterion Break. I am one-third of the hosting trifecta. I'm going to go with a uh, timely reference, kind Mm. of, that only a few people... Uh, a few crossover people will probably even get. Uh, I am the Kevin Nash of our NWO <laughs> hosting trifecta. Andy, the resident fat dude of Fat Dude Digs Flicks. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my Scott Hall, my Razor Ramon of the NWO, Blake Ginnethan. Blake, how you doing, buddy? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing really well. And that yeah. means... Coming in as Hollywood, Hulk Hogan, mm. uh, breaking through, Mr. <laughs> Derek Varink. Derek, how you doing? Doing great. You've you've put me in hallowed company, <laughs> making me the Hulk of the group. That's just, just was not prepared far for less that. racist. <laughs> Look, I am a no holds barred kind of person. Let's there, just say there that. you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, I am uh, delighted to have a chance to chat with you guys. As always, for those of you listening for the first time. Welcome. The Criterion Break is a podcast where three friends dive into our love of the Criterion Collection proper and the Criterion Channel. If you're joining us now, uh, we are in the midst of our Wong Kar Wai miniseries, and we are diving into the fifth movie of the miniseries uh today which is happy together uh before we get to that we'll we'll do a little bit of our usual routine and then some added bonuses so first we'll kick things off with what have we been watching and i'll start derek with you uh mr hollywood hulk hogan himself uh what criterion uh related criterion tangential product have you been watching lately yeah, thanks, brother. Um, so, <laughs> so um, a couple of weeks ago, um, over at the State Theater, um, I finally saw for the first time a long overdue uh, classic comedy that I need to see. A movie that joined the collection just last fall, which is Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace, starring mm-hmm. Cary Grant and a motley cast of characters. Um, and I enjoy this fairly quite a bit um i can see where the appeal is um that you know this is a movie that was then based off of a red hot uh, stage play and i can definitely see how this would really ex- excel probably more so as a stage production um mm-hmm. than a movie itself not to demerit what the movie is because there's a lot of fun stuff in the movie especially uh the lead performance by Cary grant who's called upon to react to all sorts of creepy and morbid goings on, um, which I was not expecting him to do as well as he does here, but um, that was very enjoyable. Um, It's, you know, an overall durable, good time as a movie. Um, Maybe didn't exactly wrap up full circle in the end as I would have hoped, but still, a very entertaining time, and I'm glad I finally saw it. 
I want to ask Derek, because I don't know, maybe this is just sometimes my, my feeling on this and Blake, feel free to chime in too. But with some of those like, uh, comedies from the forties and fifties, when you get to the ending of them, do you feel a little like, like it doesn't quite close off? Like, you know, I guess some of the more modern movies do. Cause sometimes like I love comedies from the forties and fifties. I really do. But once they get to that last beat of the movie, it's like, it's almost like another punchline instead of just ending the movie. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But do you ever do you ever kind of get that feeling of dissatisfaction when you're when you get to the end of one of those comedies? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, yeah. I know definitely not necessarily with, with the case with this movie, but there's always sure. that thought of you know during in this period of time where you know movies had to not necessarily have a happy ending, but have more of like mm. a morally sound ending um so as not to you know come off as explicitly dark i'm thinking of like you know the hitchcock series at the time where they're almost completely obligated to wrap up in a very moral fashion to appease the um, network censors and things of that nature um i i didn't necessarily get that sense of it with this movie maybe i was just kind of hoping for more of just a rousing tied together of mm-hmm. everything. I mean, it, it, the pieces do come together technically in our snick and old lace in terms of just kind of trying to weave up the plot lines and, you know, the momentum of the different goings on with the different characters, and the different dead bodies that they've kind of accumulated. Um, but maybe I was hoping for a little bit more of like that final punch going out on, on a great note, but maybe that's just sure. Me. Yeah, and maybe, you know, I feel bad because I feel like I should have an, a specific example lined up to be like, well, I mean, I mean this. Like, there's a joke, and then it's just kind of like it's over. But I think that's kind of more more of what I meant, where it's like, oh, we're just going to end on a joke, and the story wraps up, but it just feels very, like, like it screeches to an abrupt halt instead of kind of a natural, like, let's really wrap this ending up but again i don't have any specific example to go with so i'm just kind of shooting vague things uh into into the ether for you guys to do with what you will but uh i'm glad you enjoyed it uh i really like arsenic and old lace as well i think i have a uh, a lot of fun with that one a lot of fun memories too uh so yeah good show any any other ones that you've checked out uh over the last bit of time Derek? um no this isn't necessarily part of Criterion series, but it's adjacent, I would say. I did see yeah. uh, the recent international film Oscar nominee, The Quiet Girl, last weekend yeah. as well, which is a charming piece. I figure I'd mention it because after watching it, I had feelings not dissimilar to Close, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously you were very positive on. Not necessarily yeah. because it's a very, The Quiet Girl isn't necessarily as devastating as sure. Close. But it is also built upon, you know, a child performance that really is key to the movie succeeding as it is um, because it revolves around this young girl um, who's, you know, has like some struggles with her family night, family life. She's ignored. She's teased upon. She's called Miss Piss Pants in school, Um, you know, and it becomes a really empathetic portrayal in terms of like. Uh, you feel for her and you want her to have a better life. And the movie progresses with her staying for several weeks or like, I guess we'd kind of say the summerish um, with like 
her aunt and uncle, I believe. I'm probably getting the relationship wrong there. Um, out on this uh, dairy farm in the country and being able to kind of bloom and prosper under their care. Um, it's a very small, it's a very touching movie. And I would be lying if I didn't say that I was tearing up at the end of the movie. Sure. So there you go. Yeah, I, I felt bad that I had to miss that one, uh, but I think it is also now available uh, on VOD, so that might it be is. something yep. that I, I check out. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed that one, too. I, I really want to make sure that I get that watched here sometime soon. Uh, Blake, anything for mm-hmm. you that you've checked out on the channel or the Criterion Collection proper? Uh, yeah, I watched a couple of things. Um, one was I... Uh, your... Uh, your review of um, the heroic trio was uh, mm-hmm. made me curious enough to uh, pop that on. And um, boy, I, I, I think my family, my family was in the room when I was watching it and there must've been, <laughs> there must've been, there must've been 10 what's, what's happening in the first five minutes. And I um, didn't know how to answer that question. Uh, it's, it's a pretty crazy movie. Um, lots of lots of martial arts uh lots of um demons uh motorcycle attacks i mean I, it's uh it's a it's a pretty crazy movie i, I think i messaged you like if if um there's i i i, I don't think uh, who is it joel schumacher who directed batman returns uh <laughs> yeah there's there's no way he didn't see this movie oh, because this, this movie feels like oh Batman Forever yes I'm sorry yeah um there's no way he didn't see this movie because this movie that uh uh Batman Forever feels like th- it was like the, the production design was based off of this movie um it's very big very like comic booky um people like fly through the air there's there's no like logic in terms of well anything really but um. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a really crazy movie. Uh, I watched it. It's, it was a part of the Michelle Yo Kicks Ass um, section on the channel. Uh, a lot of fun. I think I give it four stars. It's just, it's it's just wall to wall. People explode. People exploding. Uh, people flying through the air. There's a part of the end of the movie where like the villain gets reduced to like bones and <laughs> veins. And then it actually like wraps itself around one of the women and uses her body as its own to fight yeah. the other women. It's 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 absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, it's um, man, I you know like this is something that like I wish I could see in a theater with like a hundred people because they would be hooting and hollering. And um, yeah, also I forgot to mention it's it's directed by Johnny Toe, who is um, one of the best Asian directors that we have. So I, that was a pretty cool uh, thing to uh, discover. But um, pretty pretty crazy movie that they decided to put it, which is why I love the channel because there's just a plethora of types of movies on there. It's not just like these art house, independent, you know, foreign stuff. It's just like it, there's all kinds of wild cinema on there too, and uh, that was a lot of fun to watch. Um, so I, I highly recommend that one. And then um, the other one I watched isn't on the Criterion channel or, or anything, but I finally got to watch Close, uh, the mm. Belgian movie. And um, I thought that was a pretty great movie. Um, I, I'm, 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 I'm getting pretty sick and tired of like these like 
toxic masculinity movies that are basically just like men are bad. And I, yeah. I loved, I loved this like sort of um, view of it where it was more like the pressure of like masculinity or at least maybe like the way we perceive it amongst our, our groups of friends um, puts pressure on us to act a certain way when we don't, we shouldn't have to. And I, I don't, I don't want to spoil too much about what happens in this movie, but um, it was, it was pretty amazing to watch this um, like sort of friendship and what happens to it um, just by like little bits of maybe like how we, how we interact with other boys in school. In this case, it's boys, but um, you can you can extrapolate it to society as a whole with men and how we sort of like maybe we're expected to act among around our friends and or how we we should or shouldn't like um, interact with with our friends and I thought it was a, a really uh, devastating look at um, uh, that and um, just the, the effects of how we deal with it and um, some as a parent some of the scenes are pretty hard to watch. Um, but I, I do feel like uh, this was a very earnest and um, like non-grandiose way of, of um, de- dealing with these issues. Uh, there's a great scene at a, at a dinner table where, you know, the, the, <laughs> a, a certain set of parents are visiting the family of one of the child and they're talking about their life and like how one boy is like planning for his future and one one set of parents sort of like deals with that with yeah. um and and it's just sort of like a really you know i just i just felt like it was a very um like non-stylized way of of uh of the situation and it was a pretty realistic way and i um i listened to an interview with the director i think his name is lucas Daunt or Durant or something, and yeah. it was a very it was just like the pre planning he put into this movie about these two young boys who um, their friendship is sort of like really tested. Um, yeah, just uh, I thought it was a pretty um, pretty miraculous movie, and I, I, like you know I, I didn't really make a top ten list this year, but this yeah. would have really this would really have pushed for like ten or nine um, if if I if I had made one. So it's a pretty I highly recommend it. I know you guys. Both really liked it a lot too, so it's kind of like yeah. three glowing reviews from us on that movie. Yeah, uh, I know that it is. It is now available uh, on VOD. Yeah, um, pretty. I, I think it's like the the nineteen ninety nine for sale and like five ninety nine mm-hmm. for rental, but uh, definitely worth a watch. I'm glad glad you enjoyed it. But yeah, you're 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 right. There are some scenes that you know I can even imagine as a as a parent are probably much more gutting than uh, you know than not being a parent and still being emotionally affected by it. But yeah, yeah wonderful movie. Yeah. yeah. Any other any other things that you've checked out lately, Blake? No, that's it. I, I mean, I did watch The Sadness, but that's never going to get close to, like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, premiere, you know, Criterion yeah. stuff. So that's a that's a that's a screens from the basement conversation. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I I didn't have any. I didn't watch anything this uh, uh, this time period uh, other than Happy Together. I watched some other stuff too, but nothing uh, nothing in the realm of Criterion. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll just I'll just save my thoughts for Happy Together. But uh, before we dive into that, uh, uh, we would be remiss. Uh, if we f- did not mention that, I believe today the date of recording uh, is yep. ten years, uh, the ten year anniversary of the passing of Roger Ebert. Uh, Ebert was a 
uh, immensely famous uh, film critic from Chicago, uh, known for not only for his written reviews and his books, uh, but the TV series Siskel and Ebert at the Movies uh, was kind of the, I would say, uh, pretty foundational uh, to my enjoying movies. Uh, it would be something that I would watch Anytime that I could find it on TV, everything would stop and I would just watch the reviews. Even if they were talking about movies that I hadn't heard of as a child, I still wanted to watch it. So I think I kind of want to just talk to you guys, like, what influence did Roger Ebert have on you guys? Because I know kind of across the board with all three of us, he's someone that really, like, uh, a critic that we all looked up to. But, like, what's, I guess, maybe kind of how did he... How how was he the guide on your journey through movies? If if that's the case, or or what kind of uh, influence did he have on your your movie going journey? Yeah, I guess I'll start here. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, for me, it started with uh, Cisco and Ebert, which I very specifically recall aired every Saturday evening at five p.m. on Kelloland TV back when I was a kid. Um, so if I was happy, happy enough to stumble upon kill Land during that time, I would definitely, uh, watch it. Um, because Hey, I get to watch a TV show about movies on the TV. And it was especially viable because as someone who, as I mentioned before, when Andy and I did my first taco bat with him, you know, we live like 45 miles from like the nearest movie theater. Um, you know, so we weren't necessarily, getting out to the movies super frequently, but the show was a nice like gateway to at least keep abreast of um, what was going on in the movie world, uh, at least in one aspect. Um, what became an even bigger driver later on was like starting in the mid nineties when I first actually started to actually read Ebert's written reviews for the Chicago sun times. Um, I think I had also mentioned on that talk about episode that, uh, Every year in the mid-90s, we would get not only um, the Microsoft Cinemania CD-ROM, which included, like, reviews of Ebert's as well as, like, Leonard Malton Guide reviews and Pauline Kale capsule review cutdowns as well. Um, but I would also make a point, like, usually around, like, every Christmas, um, asking my mom to get that year's newly published Roger Ebert movie companion or Roger Ebert movie yearbook Um so that I could actually enjoy reading his reviews at my leisure. I think actually earlier today I dug up what I had posted uh, 10 years ago on this day, which was my stack of Ebert movie yearbooks from years past, which are still in my closet to this day. I will never part with those. Um, But yeah, in terms of Ebert's writing, um, I very much enjoyed it because it was very much a, you know, a laid back conversational style. Um, Eber was never one to, you know, or was always one to make it very clear, like, you know, what was his personal approach or personal insight toward movies. Um, His approach toward criticism is, you know, something I would strive for in that it, our movie review should have two purposes. It should serve a purpose. If you haven't seen the movie yet and you're wanting to judge whether or not you should watch the movie or not. But also if you have seen the movie, um, 
his review should also serve a purpose in terms of being able to see or understand his specific points of criticism, both good and bad, after you've seen um, the movie as well. And that's something that whenever I do my informal reviews, that's something I like to strive for as well. Um, But also, as I've kind of been going through on YouTube recently, I've been doing a huge binge of various Siskel and Ebert programs from, you know, going back to like the late seventies with their PBS show all the way through like the late nineties, you know, just around the time when, you know, Siskel unfortunately passed away. Um, And it's a fascinating time capsule because one, obviously these were kind of like the creator, like the, how should I say it? The top of the line in terms of, you know, like they're these two guys were the best known movie critics in America, full stop. And if I would look at a newspaper ad, you know, obviously the thing they would want to do is like, if they got a two thumbs up from Cisco and Nieper, that would be plastered as a poll quote on the top of the ad as a badge of honor. Um, it was a very simple yet effective rating system. You know, obviously, you know, the precursor to like the, 90 something percent of Rotten Tomatoes, what what, yeah. what have you for that. Um, yeah. So that was a big deal. It also fascinated me as I was been watching these old programs, kind of like what they were advocating for, you know, during their time. Things like I come across like last week, an episode where they were talking about like home video in um, the late 80s. And they were kind of railroading against like the things they didn't like at home video at that time. Because already in the late 80s, they're, you know, they're already touting the cause for like having movies letterboxed on home video as opposed to pan and scan or really pushing for video stores to have like an eclectic mix of movies instead of just, you know, the top renters that were going to, you know, do big business. Um, It was also fascinating to see like, you know, the just within the course of a normal episode, because they would usually fit in reviews of about five movies and yet they would use their platform frequently, you know, to, Obviously, you get the big blockbusters, the wide releases, like the first three movies on the show. But then they usually find a way to get in the independents and uh, the foreign art house faves in there as well. And give and give precious uh, airtime on their Disney-funded television show to give these movies uh, their due highlighting in course. Um, and, of course, they were never one to also, you know, really – if something really irked them, um, they would obviously complain about it. I was watching, for example, episodes they did in like early 95, you know, as the Oscar nominations and then Oscar awards came out. And the big thing that was kind of parading through that episode was how pissed they were um, that Hoop Dreams did not get a best documentary nomination. Because mm-hmm. if you remember them back in that time, that was like a movie that they were, you know, like both 10, like the absolute number one movie of the year. Um, and we're really trying to make a case for that. And, we're probably single-handedly responsible for that movie getting as much exposure as it did because of how they praised that movie and then how upset they got when the Academy did not give it its due course. Um, so I think that was kind of fascinating. And I guess what I'll just leave it on is, you know, obviously you can kind of see their influence today in terms of like the myriad of YouTubers, you know, who do their own, you know, lo- video reviews online that are clearly influenced by the work that Cisco Niebuhr did back in the day. Um, I guess if there's one thing I'll, I'm kind of curious about is obviously a lot of people are influenced by them, but in this day and age, we don't necessarily have like that, you know, like who's that preeminent movie criticism voice 
these days in the way that Cisco Niebuhr were those days. And I don't necessarily know that we have that, but at the same time, when Cisco Niebuhr were, you know, in prominence, you know, back in the 80s and 90s where we had more of like that focused monoculture and they were able to kind of ascend to, as well as the fact that, you know, back, there was a time back in the day where you could have like a nationally syndicated movie criticism show. And ultimately it faded away. I remember like right before Ebert died, you know, he was actually trying to revive it uh, or revive his program in a way on PBS um, with new host and even him contributing reviews with an AI voice and stuff like that. But it only lasted a year and didn't get the momentum. And, you know, it, it kind of makes me wonder if, you know, we'll ever have, you know, that truly um, leading voice in film criticism again. But at the same time, I think the fact that we have as big a community of film criticism uh, today, even spreading to like, you know, the prominence of Letterboxd in our society. Yeah. I think all those things that we can credit in some fashion to what Cisco Niebuhr did back in the day to kind of help bring movie criticism to the forefront as, you know, a uh, popular culture item in itself. So I'll yeah. leave it there. It's, it's interesting because it's like, I think about that quite a bit too. It's like now, you know, because there are so many critics, do we have that one voice that people are like, yeah, this is the person that I trust and listen to. And I, I definitely think that's, that's gone, but I think there are a lot of different sources that, you know, people can, uh, you know, various people will find and trust and, and, you know, put their faith in. Like, I know, uh, uh, I, I, I like, I like and dislike uh, David Ehrlich, uh, probably <laughs> equal equal parts, uh, because sometimes I find his his insight to be incredibly uh, intelligent and like, oh yeah, I get it, I see what he's talking about. And then other times I find it to be completely frustrating. <laughs> but you know, I think that kind of helps make up a good critic because you can kind of put things into perspective. But then you know, there's the YouTube critics. Like I would say, you know, to an extent, Red Letter Media. Uh, 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 the, the, the guys who do honest trailers, you know, they're, they're doing a form of criticism, even though it's, uh, you know, not laid out like this is the movie. Let's talk about this. I think there's something there that some people can gravitate to. It just kind of depends on how they, how they like to consume their, their film criticism. Uh, Blake, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on Roger Ebert. I know, uh, certainly someone who is, uh, very, instrumental and influential to you, but I just kind of want to, want to hear your story and hear how much uh, uh, Ebert means to you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to, to put it lightly uh, or not to put it succinctly, uh, like Ebert was essentially my hero for um, like wanting to dive into movies more and analyze them and understand them more. And um and so I, I mean, I was a, I was an acolyte of Ebert. I mean, I hinged my week on like Friday mornings when his reviews would come out. And then, and then it became Thursday nights when his reviews came out. And I could not wait to see what he was um, reviewing or uh, giving uh, certain movies, uh, what, what star ratings he was giving them to. Uh, I, I didn't watch a lot of Siskel and Ebert. So um, that was, um, that that sort of era really missed me. I was I watched a lot more Ebert and Roper, and um, mm -hmm. while I, I you know obviously the 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 jury is probably like well Roper wasn't as good as as uh, Cisco in terms of like 
you know, the, the, when the dog fights they get into, I mean, I, I, I do think that Roper still held his own at times. And, um, yeah. when, the, when those two would fight, it was, it was something to watch. I, I re- yeah. remember them, uh, specifically getting into it over, uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. They were quite on opposite pages with that. What Derek failed to mention was that he chose the Roger Ebert documentary to be as one as his criterion wish list. Uh, oh, so that's, that's right. Awesome. Life so itself. We know that he's a huge uh, Ebert fan, which is uh, uh, really cool. Uh, that's a phenomenal book, and um, and uh, what the, the, the Ebert's influence on me goes so much deeper than actual movies. He's kind of the first person that introduced me to, to empathy, and his speech on you know machines can be a machine for empathy and to. to to sort of um, know what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes and know their struggles and, um, you know, uh, understand others and, and, and what they, what they go through. Uh, I, I learned all that through Roger Ebert and, um, you know, his struggle with alcoholism plays a big, uh, a big deal into that. Um, and uh, so I owe my, you know, I don't, I don't, my lifelong cause of understanding empathy and 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 doing doing my best to see that in people. I owe that to Roger Ebert, and I, you know I'll, I'll never forget uh, his passion for that being instilled in me. And um, so I, I owe that debt to him. But as far as like who he is, uh, you know, Derek t- sort of touched upon it with with his writing. His ability to write reviews, and then you know, like, um, if he really, if he really didn't like a movie, like his ability to take down a movie <laughs> was second to none. I, I can't think of anything specific, but like, um, I, I, you know, if we want, if, I, I guess we can talk about Rob Reiner's North. You know, where he <laughs> he was like the first uh, critic. To, I, he, I don't. Maybe I'm making this up, but like, he was one of the first critics to say, to use the word hate. He that he hated a movie. He oh, said, like, Derek. I hated, 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 hated yeah. this movie. Yeah. And gave it zero stars. And I think he even named a book uh, after yes. that as well. Yep. Um, of his... Zero star reviews. Um, <laughs> to, 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 to sort of piggyback off of what Derek said about the two thumbs up thing, uh, he, uh, David Lynch uh, got two thumbs down for Lost Highway and actually wanted that on the poster for, for Lost <laughs> Highway. He wanted... Uh, he wanted... Uh, Two thumbs down, two more reasons to see uh, Lost Highway. So I thought that was a funny little uh, quip that he would do. But um, yeah, I you know I just loved his passion for for movies and life. You know, he loved his wife more than anything. He he didn't have kids himself, but he loved his stepkids more than anything. And you know, he would go see two, three, four movies a day, and his wife would go with him. And um, you know, he 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 cared about the projection in theaters. He cared about the lighting. He cared about the the um the sound he he cared about the presentation of the movies um one of my favorite ebert moments is when he went to sundance and um the great justin lynn movie uh better luck tomorrow played and someone called them racist for 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 uh for um you know uh showing asians in a bad light and roger ebert got up and started yelling at this man you know like how dare they that you know like if, if if this was about white people, they they wouldn't say it's racist. But because yeah. it's, it's Asians, you know, showing them other than like being smart and you know 
family oriented, you know, showing, you know, like a, a different side of Asian culture, like, yeah. you know, just, just his, 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 his want and need to shot this man down and stick up for this different type of, of, um, uh Asian culture I, I thought that I thought that was a great Tometomo moment just like so many great moments that he did and I, another one of my favorites is when he was at um TIFF in 2008 and uh Danny Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire uh played he uh, uh he sat in front of Danny Boyle at the premiere and um when the movie ended he wrote on a piece of paper Oscar question mark and showed it to Danny Boyle. And of course it would go on to sweep the Oscars the next year. Just, just little things like that. Yeah. You know, like I just, yeah, I just, like Derek said, like we, we have this void that like people nowadays, we, they just, they don't have that person who like was sort of like the grandfather, you know, the, the grandpa of, of film criticism, you know, love or hate. And um, I, I just, I miss Roger. I, I, I watch movies nowadays and I'm just like, what would Roger Ebert think of this movie? Like, would he like this movie? Yeah. And um, w- one last quick little like funny thing, maybe means less than anything. Like Roger Ebert never hid like how horny he was. And I sort <laughs> of just like really, I sort of really, not, not in a disgusting old man way, just like, yeah. you know, like he loved Angelina Jolie and like yep. sometimes his sometimes his love or his crush on her jaded his reviews and he didn't hide behind that you know yeah. and i really i really appreciated that and you know there's one time where like Rope, uh richard roper called him out like i think you have a crush on angela jolie and he goes so what if i do you know so what <laughs> and i just i i i just i appreciate that i appreciate the honesty and um yeah, I you know I just I miss the guy dearly, and I I yeah. it's one of those him him along with like David Bowie. I wish they just were still with us, living, and they, they couldn't die. So I yeah. I love Roger Ebert, and I I miss him dearly. So yep, yep. Uh, go ahead, Derek. Did you have another? No, I was, uh, I was just thought? gonna say. I mean, o- along those lines, that you're saying missing him today. I really did enjoy that. Um, AI Banshees of Inisherin review that you shared. Yeah. Um, Siskel and Ebert going at, which is dead on in terms of like what they would say about a movie today, but also completely ridiculous. And of course, then yeah. you ultimately understand why it's about Banshees of Inisherin, of course. But um, yeah. it, it did create a little bit of longing. I will say, like, man, I wish they were around today just see like you know if they'd be railing on marvel movies or stuff like that it would yeah you know it, it again it is a void it's sad but you know yeah. um we're thankful for what we did have yeah exactly yes. yes yep absolutely agree uh you know you guys said it pretty pretty eloquently uh but my i echo your sentiments i just uh ebert was the uh the the i guess the the measuring post for me the measuring stick like he presented his reviews in a way, as you said, Derek, especially uh, he presented them in a way where it was, you know, he would talk about the, the elements of film, the craft of filmmaking, but he would present it in a way where it was for general audiences. Uh, Never, never treated the people who were reading his reviews as someone who like, you know, had to pull out a thesaurus to look up what he was talking about. He just, reviewed the films and tried to present them in a way that could uh either be appealing to people make them want to go see the movie or let them know that the movie was just not worth their time and money um and i think that that was super influential to me uh how i you know how i like to write reviews uh but also just the 
he opened the the world of movies up for me uh where it was i was able to you know realize that there was more out there other than you know just the big blockbusters that were playing at at the theater each week and i can still appreciate those but i know that you know maybe in small theater number 1 there's a movie playing that currently has like three people sitting in it that might mm-hmm. still be really good as opposed to auditorium eight, where there's like, you know, a house full of people watching explosion after explosion after explosion. And I just, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I, I love the, the life itself documentary. Um, I should read the book because it would be nice to hear the entire story from his point of view. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, there is certainly a void um, with his absence, uh, but man, it just, uh, I feel like we are, we, we are lucky to be living at a time where he was alive uh, so that we could experience a lot of that firsthand. So uh, I, I will also say there are a handful of movies that Ebert did do audio commentaries for yes. in the DVD era that are very good. He did yes. Citizen Kane. He did Casablanca. Yes. He did Dark City, which was yeah. his number one movie of 1998. Again, one of those ones that he was a big champion of. And, of course, he did a commentary for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Um, mm. I, I do want to say really quickly, uh, also, I'm pretty sure Hoop Dreams is the number one movie of the decade in the 90s as well. I think so. I think so. That sounds about right. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent movie. Uh, yeah. And and he was uh, a champion for that movie uh, you know, from the moment of its release. So, uh, yeah, definitely a, a huge uh, uh, debt of gratitude uh, that I feel like we owe uh, Roger Ebert. So we definitely didn't want his the anniversary of his passing to go without being mentioned. Uh, let's jump from there. I need to work on my transitions, like have a really smooth way to segue from one topic to another. Instead, I'm just going to say, let's dive in to our featured movie of the week, uh, which is continuing our Wong Kar Wai miniseries. Um, and our movie this week is Happy Together. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm curious. I had seen this one before, mm-hmm. and I think this is the first one of the series that I had, had watched before. We're about to get into more familiar territory for me. Uh, but I'm curious with you guys, had you seen this movie before and what was kind of a general reaction? Blake, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, your kind of general thoughts on happy together. Yeah. So this is a rewatch for me. I watched it, um, probably two or three years ago. Um, sure. I think I watched it pretty close to with like, uh, uh, when I watched like fallen angels, but, um, yeah, so this is a rewatch for me. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't quite take to this one as much as I did the other ones. And we, we can get into that. And my rewatch pretty much confirmed those feelings, uh, with oh, sure. this one. And I think, um, I think it's because it's not, it, th- this is sort of like the come down uh, uh, from being in love. You know, I, th- I think this is sort of like the what if it doesn't go well um, situation uh, for for the earlier movies like Chungking Express. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, a, a little less like uh, stylistic maybe and yeah. a little more, um, a little more steeped in realism and, and I, I don't know if that's why I don't like it, but I, we can discuss it and kind of, you know, talk through it. But I, I didn't like this one as much as Chung Express um, um, 
and, and, and you know, Fallen Angels and the other ones that we've seen. Yeah. Derek, what were your, your kind of thoughts? Had you, had you seen this one before or was this a first time mm-hmm. watch for you? Um, I watched this for the first time just last night. Sure. Um, so yeah, going into this and again, the advantage of me kind of going into these movies in their chronological order as we're kind of running through the series, um, obviously seeing what he had just done you know, with the previous two movies that he had made, which we covered last time, Chunking Express and Fallen Angels. Um, it, it made me very curious because for one, this is a movie that for the most part takes place outside of Hong Kong. It's, you know, set in Argentina. Um, so I was very curious to see how Wonker Y would lend himself to, you know, a completely different locale. Um, even though if I'm being honest, you know, oftentimes didn't really feel that much different. So it's like, yeah. oh, instead of a squalid Hong Kong apartment, we're in a squalid Buenos Aires apartment. <laughs> um, so there you go. Um, it's a movie that I thought started strong, but kind of lost its gas. Like, I know if I was to be funny and witty about it, you could say that this movie is about the disintegration of a relationship, but it's also kind of the disintegration of the movie itself, or at least it felt to me like it was kind of losing its focus, maybe spinning its wheels a little bit. Um, after the movie was finished and I was doing my reading up on the movie and the, my research found like, Oh yeah. Uh, Wong Kar Wai basically went into this movie without a script and was just kind of making it up as it goes along. And at that point I was like, okay, it kind of makes sense why this movie plays out the way that it does. Um, and then it's a shame I didn't have the time to get into like the, hour-long deleted scene package that's on the yeah. World of Warren Car White disc that has like all sorts of like junked subplots and other you know failed tangents um for the movie. Um I mean it, it ties together enough at the end to at least give like something resembling a conclusion. Um but you know but yeah but you could also kind of feel at the end like oh uh we're we'll get into it with the plot but Oh yeah, we're back in Hong Kong. Here comes back to all the staples of, you know, what we've expected, you know, in past Wong Kar Wai movies. To be sure, um, but yeah, we'll we'll get into the intricacies of it in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I uh, you know I I think I'm there with you guys. Uh, I think I like this one more than I liked Fallen Angels, uh, hmm. but I did. Uh, uh, it it loses something as it nears its way uh towards its conclusion just because it, the you know i guess we'll i guess we can dive into plot as we get there but our our couple like separates and there's still like a half an hour left of the movie where we're still kind of we're still getting a story and it just, I, I feel like it, the the movie was more focused when they were together um, instead of apart. Um, even even if we're dealing with a really crappy relationship, which that's how this this all feels to me. This is a, a toxic relationship with with manipulation uh, of someone who it feels like people two people who are in very different places in the relationship. Uh, and one who knows that and kind of uses that to get what he wants from the other person, um, you know, until uh, until the other person is kind of realizes what's going on and decides they want something different. They want something better. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it, it, it kind of uh, 
I don't know, just drifts off course in the last 30 minutes. And it doesn't become a bad movie by any means, uh, but because I feel like it just kind of loses its way, the the movie suffers a little bit for it. Uh, but again, I still, I still enjoyed it. I still thought it was a beautiful uh, movie mm-hmm. to look at. Uh, there has not been, you know, not one of these movies uh, hasn't been visually sumptuous, like just beautiful colors, beautiful cinematography. Um, this was fun to kind of bounce back and forth a little bit between black and white and color. Uh, and then it made, to me, it felt like it made the color uh, pop even more, uh, which, you know, was kind of cool because I, I feel like Wong Kar Wai and, and uh, Christopher Doyle, that's the name of his usual cinematography. Yep. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. They work so well together that they really, accentuate that color anyway that to kind of alternate between black and white and then color it just makes it feel even more like resonant uh and so those those sequences were just i don't know it made my eyes just kind of go oh okay let's 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 get into it um but yeah i i i like this one uh, i think i may have liked it a little bit more than both of you guys, but I, I uh, completely understand uh, where you're coming from with, with any kind of criticism because that ending, uh, you know, veers a little off course for me. Uh, so let's kind of talk about that plot. Derek, do you want to kind of drive us through this movie and, and let us know what Happy Together is all about? Yeah, so uh, this movie is about a gay couple from Hong Kong. Um, uh, there's Faye, played by Tony Leung, and Poe, played by Leslie Chung. And as the movie starts, um, they are just arriving in Argentina for a trip that they're taking together, which is kind of set up as a the latest of their quote-unquote starting overs, as it were, <laughs> uh, that they're kind of using you know, the this trip to kind of reset the clock and restoke the fires. Um, however, things can quickly fall apart because... Um, if I recall correctly, they get this like lamp of the local Iguzu Falls, uh, these waterfalls, uh, which are shown in very vivid aerial shots, courtesy of Christopher Doyle. Um, so the uh, so Faye and Poe decide to travel to these falls. However, things fall apart because they get lost very quickly. I even think maybe they had some car troubles as well, and they ultimately get pissed off at each other again. Um, and kind of right then and there, the trip has kind of become a failed effort. Um, however, they also don't have enough money to get home, um, which requires Fai to take up a job as a doorman at a tango bar uh, to hopefully raise the money for them to get home. Um, in the meantime, Poe is kind of like the more impulsive member of the couple, uh, feels more apropos to blow whatever money they have left. Um, oftentimes he'll ride up to the tango bar where Faye is working at uh, with other suitors um, and, you know, basically living like there's no tomorrow. Um, Fai, of course, gets pissed off at Poe that he's spending the money, um, which leads Fai, or sorry, which leads Poe to uh, attempt to make up for it, you know, in a, unusual way by uh, stealing a watch uh, from a local man. Um, ultimately, said man catches wind of this, uh, beats him up, and then goes back to face and hey, can I have my watch back yet? Um, so ultimately, as is kind of par for the course with the number of these Wong Kar Wai movies, uh, 
uh, Poe is beaten up. So Fi welcomes Poe in, back into his small cramped apartment um, where Fi basically tends to Poe's wounds. Uh, during this time, there's some strife because there's this suspicion, uh, potential jealousy uh, between the two men. Uh, one thing, one example that comes to mind is how Poe keeps finding ways and excuses to go out, like to go, like the way he claims it is he's going out to the local bodega convenience store to pick up cigarettes. Um, so Fi decides to get his revenge by basically buying a crap ton of cigarettes himself and stocking them above uh, Poe's bed to kind of put an end to that. Of course, Poe doesn't like that very much. Um, so I'll stop there for now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any kind of uh, uh, initial thoughts on the, uh, the opening, I guess the, the opening section of this film, Blake, I, we can start with you. What were your kind of, uh, uh, any kind of response to the the beginning of this movie? Um, hmm. I mean, I guess uh, not really. I mean, um, yeah. it's it's very straightforward. Yeah, you know, I, uh, we're kind of talking. You get, I listen to you guys talk, and I sort of realize like this, like in terms of like a plot, this this one has the most of mm-hmm. maybe most Wong Kar Wai movies that we've talked about. Um, yeah. This one doesn't rely as much on visuals, so yeah. I mean, like all all the setup stuff right now. Like, I'm not too much to say on. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it it like I'm gonna try and figure out the best way to say this. I feel like there is definitely a storyline to this movie, and a uh, the the film relies on what that plot is getting from beat to beat to beat but i also think that it is still very very thin that it is still the mm-hmm. the the characters that matter kind of the 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 energy that they're they're bringing to the story how they relate to one another so it's like the plot is there and it is the most like straightforward plot that we've had so far but again yeah. the focus is on the relationships of the characters um and in this i think we're kind of establishing right away that the relationship that they have isn't isn't great but no. it's there's still like there's something there that draws them together um and i think we get that right right away uh with the sex scene between the two of mm-hmm. them where it's just you know we yeah. instantly see that there is a, a passion between them um, and it's just kind of uh, where they where they connect outside of that. That's a little a little questionable. Well, uh, I Derek, also, oh, go ahead. I also think that sex scene is is quite important because it it, yeah. it kind of turns violent a little bit, and mm-hmm. in a way, it's sort of like indicative of what the relationship is. You know, like yeah. there there is some passion there, but like it quickly can devolve into like I don't want to say hatred, but just sort of like yeah. this. Like, um, like there's like, like some danger to it. And, um, yeah, exactly. And so, um, that was kind of the one thing that I took away from this. Also, like, uh, boy, Tony Lung, like, has anyone worn whitey tidies like him in a movie before? (laughs) Like that, that dude looks good in this movie. And, um, Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, Another thing I kept thinking about too is sort of like um, maybe this is a better thought for a, a different part of the show, but like, like 
the the roles that Tony Long has done, like he really is just like a superstar. Like where he can go mm-hmm. from, you know, being like in, in a like a John Woo where he is like shooting ten thousand bullets, to like being in this dilapidated apartment in Buenos Aires wearing literally just underwear and like his yeah. soul is bare. I, I just yeah. like he really is like. I don't. I, I'm going to use Tom Cruise as an example, but like, it's only because like Tony Lung is just like this really good-looking superstar movie star actor, and uh, right. like, it, I just I get the appeal of that, you know. And, and like, no one shoots Wong Kar Wai like him. I know I just didn't say anything about the opening of the the movie. I just that was the thought that I had uh, as as I was um, sort of like beginning this journey of of Happy Together. Well, I think that I think that makes sense because I mean we're we're getting uh exposed to him and to 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 Les, Leslie Chung right away like and you can't help but their their physical impression um is something that kind of sits with you and I was thinking the same thing because it's like you know like you said up to this point and and in other movies like Tony Lung plays this very suave debonair just elegant classy man who is cool as can be and here he is uh open and vulnerable and kind of hurt broken uh, yeah yeah and it's just it's it's really exciting to see uh just how um varied how talented he can be uh varied in his talents um so yeah i i agree but i think I think even noting the performances is still uh, a pretty important part of putting the movie together, Blake. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's it's, it's a fantastic performance, and he he wears white underwear incredibly well. <laughs> uh, Derek, what are what are some of your thoughts on this first section of the film? Yeah, um, I mean, you, you guys said a lot of what I would have said about uh, Tony Lung here. Um, as I noted in my letterbox review, he's kind of. I don't think this movie works as well as it does without him at the center of it uh, with that wounded nature uh, going on with him or just, you know, just seeing, you know, the mournfulness as he takes on shit job after shit job after shit job uh, throughout the course of this movie. Um, you know, he, he really, he really ties it all together and that's a massive credit to him in that regard. Um, I was very curious how this movie was starting out. I was getting the impression of, Ooh, is uh, Wonka Wai going to give take us on this uh, Argentinian road trip? Just kind of seeing like <laughs> how we can give the local flavor uh, or exploit explore the local flavor of Argentina. You know, much in the same way that he did with Hong Kong. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, that falls apart rather quickly, and we don't yeah. have that sadly. <laughs> um, you know, which maybe maybe more of that would have helped to fuel this movie a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, because ultimately, you know, the scope of this movie becomes very clear. I mean, the where we do ultimately land for location, this movie is not really dissimilar from mm-hmm. what we've seen because it basically just becomes the outside of this tango bar and the apartment, and then later on, like the other places where Tony Lung works and like this this alleyway or whatever where they play soccer and that's pretty much all you have for locations in this movie and it becomes very i wouldn't say claustrophobic but it's very very contained you know for you know when you have this opportunity to like just go through argentinia and do do this stuff but so it is maybe that's all part of what they're trying to do so that there's there's that um the other thing that felt a little bit you know because 
I was thinking, I was really coming up with thoughts of like, as tears go by when I was watching this, because not unlike that movie, you kind of have a similar thing where you've got like this semi-composed person, but then you also have this wild card as Mm -hmm. kind of makes things, you know, problematic and troublesome, just gets them into deeper and deeper messes throughout all of this. Uh, Of course, it's more embodied by the fact that, you know, this is more of a romantic relationship where this is seated in instead of just more like a business relationship as it were. Um, But it did feel a little, dare I say a little bit deliberate or derivative, but you know, obviously you have to have that conflict when you're depicting kind of like this relationship that's gone through a lot and they've tried to go to extremes to kind of reinvigorate it. Uh, But even this trip to Argentina has ultimately created more messes than they can get out of nicely and which ultimately leads to their eventual downfall. So mm. there's that. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the second part of this movie. I don't really have anything extra to <laughs> to, to, to contribute to, to the first part, just outside of the, the, the discussion of the two actors um, yeah. who, you know, uh, Leslie Chung too. We, we talked about Tony Leung, but uh, just always an interesting uh, actor to watch in, in the movies, especially that we've watched so far, but just, he has this, I don't know. The wild card is kind of a really good uh, 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 terminology to use. Cause he always, he has this, this energy to him where it's a little unpredictable um, in a lot of the characters that he's played so far. All right. Um, so one night at the tango bar, uh, Fai is working outside as a doorman. He sees, Arriving at the tango bar, the man who beat Poe up. Um, so Fai decides to get his revenge on that man, and as a result, he's canned from his job there. So in order to keep making the money to fly back home to Hong Kong, he gets a new job at a Chinese restaurant working in the kitchen there, um, where he befriends uh, another man, Chang, played by Chen Chang, um, which becomes a little bit more just like a more like formal friendship, not necessarily anything that Phi acts upon romantically or necessarily. Um, in the meantime, Phi and Poe are still kind of running into conflicts. Um, Poe becomes suspicious of Phi because Phi has hidden Poe's passport. Um, this leads to a bit of fighting. Poe rips apart the apartment, trying to find it. Uh, a lot of stress and strife there. Ultimately, once Poe has healed from his wounds fully, he moves out of Fai's apartment. Um, but shortly after that, um, Chang leaves Buenos Aires as well. He's made his goal to get, to go to travel, to head to like the southernmost part of South America um, and achieve that milestone uh for his personal journey uh Fai ultimately departs that restaurant where he met Chang and he takes upon his final shit job which is at a slaughterhouse um working there he's finally able to get enough money to fly home uh but before Fai flies home he decides to reattempt to visit the Iguazazu Falls, uh, where he and Poe attempted to travel to unsuccessfully at the beginning of the movie. Again, we get more gorgeous aerial shots of the falls and, of course, shots of Tony Leung at the falls getting completely drenched. Um, 
meanwhile, uh, Poe returns to Fi's old apartment, but Fi is totally gone at this point, and he breaks down and cries, and that's basically all that we see of Poe in this movie. Um, I'll stop there before we get to the actual final ending. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, um, I guess we'll just, we'll just kind of keep going in order. Blake, any, any, uh, any thoughts on the, the middle of the movie, the, the kind of meat and potatoes of the movie? Yeah. I mean, it was just sort of like, uh, it was, it was, it, for me, it's like a fascinating watch of like what, um, the, the disintegration of a relationship but also like a toxic like uh snake eating its own tail relationship yeah. as well where um you know Fi is like taking care of Poe when he's getting when he's hurt and just the manipulation of uh oh go go make go, can, can you make me this can can you yeah. do, like there there's one there's well, one sequence where like uh he's like oh can you make me some 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 food and he goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm cold. I'm cold. You know, like I'm, I'm really warm right now. Yeah. I'm sick. And then the next shot is like him with a blanket over him and he's like cooking ramen or something. And I just like, just the little things like that, where, um, you can see that, um, how is, 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 is taking advantage of, uh, five, five like, like, like fleeting love for him, you know, like where he's like, I love him, but I, I want him to go. But also, like, I can't just kick him out of my life. Like, all of those little, like, uh, the, 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 like, the, the back and forth and the foreplay between them, uh, I just, it was, it was so interesting to watch. Like, they go gamble together and, and, uh, and, and just the things they would do together where, like, you could just feel the, uh, the tension between them. You know, like, you just, like, you're kind of like waiting for the other shoe to drop, even though you're like, oh, like, maybe there's something here and you know and maybe there is something there but like it just it doesn't it's not going to work and it's sort yeah. of like uh i don't know it's, it's like an ice cube melting you just know it's going to end up in water at some point and um yeah that's that's kind of what i took from this whole section of the of the movie yeah i think that's i think that's a really great uh point here is because you can tell while watching this this uh, uh, relationship on screen, there's certainly a connection there. there there's there's certainly an attraction and a, 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 a level of care between both of them, um, but they both handle it differently. Um, and I think that's it's bad. <laughs> I mean, that's that's so not intelligent way an, a, an unintelligent way of saying it. But it's just it's 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 bad. It's a toxic, there's, there's a lot of toxicity there. And I think that it's something that as soon as, uh, Faye is able to, to, to like see that you, you see that he wants to find his way out, but there's still that something that keeps kind of pulling him back where it's like, Oh yeah, I've got to, you know, I've got to make sure he's okay. I've got to make sure that, you know, maybe if I, if I can help him get better, that it's going to help change things. Um, and you know, uh, that's, that's not really always the case, um, in abusive relationships, uh, that it's like you're as much energy as you put into it, you're, you might not change things. Um, but, and I think that's to an extent, this is, there's there's some uh, emotional abuse and manipulation going on there uh, that kind of puts them in this position. But yeah, I, I think that's the 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 
best thing to kind of latch on to here is that there's certainly a connection between these two characters, but it is damaging to one of them, and the other one is going to keep doing it, keep hurting the other person until they have no quarter left, until it's it's there's they're not being let in any further. Uh, Derek, any any thoughts on this this second segment of the film? Yeah, so this second half was kind of where things fell a little bit apart for me. I, you touched on it a little bit, Andy, when you were mentioning like uh, the fact that we just don't see enough of Fi and Poe together as this. Yeah winds down and there is actually some trivia behind that because um uh leslie chung who plays poe actually had to depart filming for a while because in addition to being an actor he was also like a pop singer and had to go on a concert tour Mm. so that's where the entire plot with uh chang came about because they basically had to improvise and keep filming um with tony lung only while uh while Leslie Chung was off performing concerts elsewhere. So that's where that all kind of spins up there. Um, And so you can kind of, with that knowledge, you can kind of feel that in how it plays out. I wouldn't necessarily say it's spinning for time on screen necessarily, uh, but at the same time, it does feel a little bit improvised in the sense that it never really comes to full fruition or the fact that Ching's kind of out of the movie almost, almost as soon as he enters the movie, which is probably to its, you know, limited success there. So, um, so there's that. Um, Other than that, um, you know, yeah, I don't know what else much to say about there because, you know, it ultimately does fall apart. You get the teariness of Poe in the apartment once, you know, Fi has departed back for Hong Kong. Um, it's it's somewhat straightforward, um, yeah. but at the same time, maybe there's maybe I didn't get that complete tying of threads in the way that I might have hoped, um, and that probably extends to the actual ending, which we'll talk about in a little bit too. Sure, and I, I wonder too because uh, these these Wong Kar Wai films, they. <sighs> they kind of drift back and forth going through characters so far. It's like, you know, you'll focus on one story and you'll kind of fade into another character's story. And the the characters kind of fade in and out of each other's lives with no real, like not, not so much no definition to their comings and goings, but it's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. It has a, an, this is going to sound silly, but like an ethereal phasing to it where yeah. they just kind of, they come in and out and it all feels very, very natural. I think because this one has a lot harder of like, uh, okay, uh, now we're here and then uh, Poe is gone. And now we've met Chang and then Chang is gone. And, uh, you know, the, the relationship is over and, and Faye has left. It's, it's a lot harder cutoff points and maybe that's why i think it feels a little like uh, off-putting or a little less connected or, or or where the audience isn't able to connect with it as much um but i don't know there's 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 something there and i i see a lot you know through through talking with you guys where it just definitely it it feels Certainly like a Wong Kar Wai film, but there's something there that's just a little like 
a, a little rougher around the edges maybe with this one. And I think maybe that, that improvisational script where they didn't know exactly what they were going to do and where they were going to go. I think maybe that might, might play uh, a part in it. And especially, you know, not having uh, <laughs> Leslie Chung around for filming uh, uh, a good portion of it. You know, they had to, had to kind of make the best that they could with it. So um, yeah, part, part three, let's, let's wrap this movie up. So, as I mentioned, um, Phi had finally gotten the funds to fly back to Hong Kong. And so the final uh, five, ten minutes or so of this movie uh, shows him back in uh, in China. Um, on the way back to Hong Kong, he stops in Taipei in Taiwan, um, where he goes to the night market, you know, and you get to hear like the screaming of the people cooking in the night market, which kind of gives him throwbacks to his restaurant days uh, where he was there with Chang. Uh, and ironically enough, uh, one of the night markets he stops by is actually run by Chang's family. Um, and he knows this because in the back of uh, Chang's family's food stand, he sees various pictures of Chang from his travels, including where he ultimately got to, at the uh, southernmost point in uh, South America. Mm-hmm. Um, so he subtly steals the photo of Chang reaching that summit uh, from Chang's family's booth um, and, you know, at least has that as a memento of Chang uh, to remember him by. And that's pretty much it. Movie. I guess I'll just say really quickly that this, I don't care for the ending, <laughs> which, you know, we, we, we've already kind of addressed that in generalities, mm-hmm. uh, but I feel like it, it drifts off the main point uh, in such a way that I just kind of feel like it was extraneous. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just, I, 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 completely understand why you guys say this movie kind of loses its way uh because when, once it gets to the ending for me it's just kind of like oh that's that's what we're tying up here when we have uh, other you know other storylines where we could have or you know one main focus that I, I you know definitely came to its end but i think that's the the most dramatic point of this film is dealing with this re- this major relationship in the movie that, you know, edit this a little bit differently to put that at the end. But that's not the movie that exists. The movie that exists is the one that we have. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I I felt a little, uh, little, little let down by, by where this movie chooses to go with its ending. Uh, Blake, what are your, your thoughts on the last section of this film? Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you really said. Um, it doesn't have, like, sort of the, the, like, leave the theater with a, with a, a smile on your face or a satisfaction type of thing. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I just doesn't have that like a star thing for me with uh, yeah. like, like, you know, tears go by and chunking express. Sure. Sure. Uh, Derek, your, your thoughts on the, the ending. Yeah. I mean, on, on one hand um, there is a, there was a little bit of a sense of relief in this final mm-hmm. portion when you see him finally get back to, you know, China and Taiwan, like, oh, here we are back in the nighttime and the neon lights, yeah. the bread and butter of Wong Kar Wai. I feel at home. Um, yeah. So there is a little bit of relief in that just from 
getting to know Hill's filmography in that extent. Um, but to your points, having the ending revolve around, you know, the unrequited uh, Phi Chang relationship is a little bit underwhelming again because of what I mentioned earlier about like, you know, Chang is a fleeting character in this movie. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, maybe that's the point or maybe it's in a way Phi setting himself up for personal trouble again because he's, you know, hedging some or, you know, paying homage so much to this relationship that was very brief and wasn't even necessarily a relationship relationship at all. Yeah. Um, maybe that's me reading way too much into it as well, or at least trying to make um, a mountain more of a mountain or a finality out of what we did get. Um, but yeah, that's what I can say about that. Yeah. yeah. It's just a, just a little, little, little bit of a fizzle uh, there with the ending. Any, any other things that you guys want to cover about this? I'm, I'm kind of looking through, um, the Wong Kar Wai filmography of what we have left. And this is the last appearance of uh, Leslie Chung uh, in mm-hmm. our series. Um, and I do want to address the fact that uh, uh, Leslie Chung uh, uh, passed away early uh, at the age of 46, uh, died by suicide in April of 2003. Um, and I just... Uh, you know, it's a, that's a whole other can of worms to to open up and and to talk about as far as that goes. But uh, just an, an immensely talented uh, actor, and I, I was not even aware of his his music career. Um, but just you know, uh, very sad to lose somebody, lose anyone. Period. But to lose an actor this talented and and has a, a filmography that you know uh, included uh, some pretty great works. Uh, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to talk about that, uh, because we won't be, won't be discussing Leslie Chung anymore as we go along. Uh, but any other thoughts that you guys have on this movie that you want to make sure that we, we address as far as like, I don't know, themes, characters, anything, anything in particular that stands out to you that we, we might not have talked about so far. I guess I kind of wanted to just bring something up about like Wong Kar Wai locations and, um, what they, what they mean to me with regards to his movies. So like I, I sort of talked about it last week or, or the last episode, but like he just has this ability to find these like really run down places for his characters <laughs> to go to. That's sort of like our kind of in a weird way, like attractive, but also, you know, you know, if you got in there, you just feel so lonely and depressed. And I kind of think that's like happy together. Like the, the apartment that he is in, it's sort of kind of like indicative of what he's trying to get across with the, 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 like where his character is at. So like the characters are sort of like, uh, they're in another country. They have no money to get out of there. They're sort of trapped in this, in this place. And, uh, I sort of feel like that is what the relationship is. It's like these two guys are sort of trapped in this place where they don't really speak the language and they, they kind of have to be in this place to sort of like progress to the next stage of their life. And, you know, they, they, they sort of like have to be lonely. They sort of have to be depressed. And I know that doesn't make sense, but like, you know, if I went through a really bad time once where like I was in a really dark moment because of a, I was, I was, I was out of a relationship and it was, it was sort of hard to deal with. 
But like, yeah. I had to go through that to get out of it and sort of like realize like how great things really can be. And I kind of think mm-hmm. like the world of Happy Together sort of is like indicative of that, where you know these guys are in this this place they don't want to be, and maybe kind of going through a cycle uh, uh, of things they don't want to be in. And um, I, I think Happy Together as, as um, aesthetically and location-wise is really, uh, that's kind of the example of like what these guys are going through, uh, maybe visually. Um, yeah. and I just, I kept thinking about that as, as I was watching the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, uh... I think that's a, a really good point. It's it's interesting because that that makes me think about all of the locations that we've seen so far and how they kind of tie into uh, thematically what each of these movies are doing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and then that you know next next episode, um, I think a really big one is that location for in the mood for love, um, and how how that is connected to the story that's being told. So that'll be, that'll be kind of fun to dig into as well. But yeah, I can really see that with that, where it's like, you've got to go through this kind of uh, mucky atmosphere, uh, both emotionally and physically to get to where you want to be. Um, And I think that's great. I think they, they, he certainly does, uh, does create that with this this film with the location and with the the emotional pull of these characters uh derek any other uh closing thoughts either on this or just on the, the movie in general um i guess the one thing i do want to throw in there is that even though we all had our issues with the movie um this was fairly well received back in the day in particular uh this movie went to can and Wong Kar Wai actually won Best Director in 1997's Cannes Film Festival for this movie, um, which kind of sets the stage for some of his uh, future achievements here that we'll talk about uh, in our next episode uh, with this series. Didn't he tie for Best Director? Uh, That's a good question. Let me pull that up real quick i only i didn't see a mention of a tie but i'm gonna look it up i could i i could be wrong I thought he tied for at Cannes for something at one point, but I, I no, there, not not this year. There was a okay. tie for the okay. Palm Door that year between Taste of Cherry and The Eel, but Wong Kar Wai just won okay. Best Director by okay. himself. That's that's probably what I'm thinking of. Nice, nice. Uh, well, then let's let's go ahead and do our uh, uh, I guess mini reviews recommendations ratings uh derek we'll start with you because i started with blake on everything else uh what would you give uh happy together as far as your rating and kind of an overall uh generalized review yeah i i gave it three and a half stars on letterboxd which i think is my lowest score for a one car movie um as of yet i'm gonna be very curious how how this goes from here on out because um while i i don't know too much about the next two movies we'll be watching Mm. but i do know that for one uh the improvisational approach that one car y used a lot of with this movie very much carries on to these next two movies as well um there's a lot of like just feeling things out and i know it had at least to some breaks like for example christopher doyle quitting in the mood for love because of just how things tended to go on and on and on and on with that movie. But at the same time, I know how much In the Mood for Love is also praised. So I'm Mm. very much looking forward to that, but I'm going to be very curious, you know, 
um, how things play out here with that, because as I was even doing my research, my start of research for the next movies, there's the mentions of like in both cases with those movies in the mood for love in 2046, how Wong Kar Wai was basically working on those movies to the last minute to the point where Ken had to delay their showings of one of those movies because the print got to the festival, like only three hours ahead of time. So I'm going to be very, I mean, I, I'm, I feel very good about where these movies are probably going to land, but I'm going to be very curious how, or if Juan Carway kind of refines his more exploratory approaches toward movie making with these next films. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Blake, what are your, your rating review, general review <laughs> thoughts, final thoughts on, uh, uh yeah. happy together. Yeah. I, um, as I said earlier, like not one of my favorite Wong Kar Wai's. I still think it's a, it's a, it's a. You got to see it to sort of like um, get get to like uh, the gist of what he's doing in terms of romance and um, maybe anti romance. Uh, I'm also at a three and a half on this. I, I, it's, it's funny. Like I, I thought I gave this movie four stars when I first saw it. But when I when I rated it three and a half on Letterbox, I I discovered that I actually gave it the same rating the first time. So my rating didn't change on it. Um, it's very good. Um, just doesn't have that um, that whimsy that his other previous movies uh, have, and um, mm-hmm. not not for not, not maybe not like for worse. Just it, it isn't the Wong Kai Wai that I love. Um, yeah. But like. I still think it's a monumental Tony Tony Leung p- performance, and um, mm-hmm. Leslie Chung, as you guys have said, is just an, is incredible in this as well. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I I didn't because uh, I just I just finished this uh, a little bit before we started recording, uh, so I didn't do a, uh, a review for this rewatch. But my previous rating was three and a half, and I think I'm going to stick with that. Um, if I did quarter tacos instead of half tacos, I might give it three and a quarter. Um, I didn't like it as much this time around as I did the first time I watched it, uh, but I did like it more than, like I said earlier, I liked it more than Fallen Angels. Um, yeah, it's it's good, uh, but again, it's it, it's it's no Chunking Express, uh, and to me, because it is one that I've seen, um, it's no in the mood for love either. Uh, but definitely, definitely, definitely one that you need to check out. One worth watching. Um, and certainly a a uh, nice little uh, a nice little uh, section of his filmography here with great performances. Um, it just it the story just kind of loses its way a little bit, and that's that's really all that's that's really all that takes away from this movie for me is just uh, that it kind of loses its way, and you've got to work to get back to it. So, uh, but yeah, though that was our discussion. On Happy Together, on our next episode, we will dive into the last two films uh, from the world of Wong Kar Wai box set, uh, which are the aforementioned aforementioned, uh, In the Mood for Love and 2046. So expect that episode coming up soon. But before we go today, let's kind of talk about the Criterion channel for a second. Uh, I think, and and this is something that we kind of talked about a little bit, uh, off mic before we started because Blake, you had this, this great idea, but I like the idea too of, you know, at the end of each show, maybe having some kind of a recommendation, uh, from the channel or from the collection that's just kind of like, uh, 
oh, you know, this didn't have anything to do with anything we've talked about, but let's, I I would, I think it would be cool if people would watch this. Uh, mm-hmm. So Blake, since this was kind of your, your sure. uh, uh, idea, what, what movie would you recommend to people from the Criterion channel? Yeah. So um, the Criterion channel has a tremendous new section up called, uh, erotic thrillers which is man my bread and butter i mean yes. there's 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 so much good stuff that came out in the uh late 80s and early 90s i don't I, I, is this oh no this is 80s because my movie is from the 80s but yeah there's a lot of great picks um to choose from andy you and i covered one uh, the last seduction a couple of years ago yeah. uh the um it's a john doll john who did that yep. yeah mm-hmm. uh incredible movie uh one of the greatest performances in the history of film is in that movie um but i'm gonna choose um one of my favorite directors um his most probably his most violent his most sleaziest movie i'm gonna choose uh brian de palma's body double which um is sort of like uh one of his great riffs on um uh, an Alfred Hitchcock movie uh it's it's a, uh, about an actor a struggling actor who uh is asked to a house sit uh, a friend of his house and he happens to witness a murder and um, he sort of like dives into uh, trying to figure out who committed this murder and he ends up uh, finding himself in the adult film industry and um, or at least the the like the behind the scenes or the, the underground underworld of, of that and um, uh, like I said it's sort of like a De Palma where like he heard all of his critics who were like, Oh, you're too violent. And you, you know, like you have too much violence against women. It's too sexual. And he's just like, all right, well, I'm going to double down on all of that. (laughs) And, um, you know, just, just play a big trick on you. And, um, it's not my favorite De Palma movie, but it's one, it's one of my favorites. Um, I really, there's, there's an incredible tracking shot through a mall where there's no talking for like 10 minutes. Um, just a lot of De Palma isms are in this, and uh, yeah. So if you, if you haven't checked out um, that, I would I, I would recommend it. It's 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 back when movies were like very dangerous, and yeah. I sort of I sort of miss that aesthetic to movies where like you sort it's, it's a movie where you're you're watching it and you're kind of like I don't know if I should be enjoying this or or not, and maybe like your skin's tingling a little bit because it's sort of like playing with the idea of like, you don't know if it's turning you on or not. And I, I really love that idea of, of a movie sort of like playing with your mind. And there's nobody better at that than De Palma. Oh, nice. That is the, uh, once I saw that that was added, uh, that I, I put that at the top of my list for ones that I want to make sure that I catch uh, before it leaves the channel. I've, I've wanted to see body double for quite some time. So I will make sure that I get that watched this month. Uh, Derek, what, what do you got? What are, what are, what's your recommendation from the channel? Yeah, I'm looking through this list as well, because as I know, we remarked early on, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at some of the stuff that's in here, or at least some of the stuff that was criterion worthy stuff like poison Ivy with a uh, Drew Barrymore or <laughs> color of night, the infamous oh, color of night. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's kind of wild. I guess what I'll highlight from this list um, is body heat, which is the, which was the directorial debut mm-hmm. of Lawrence Kasdan after kind of becoming a bit of a hotshot screenwriter for working on like empire strikes back and Raiders of the lost Ark. Um, 
I remember mainly because it's the also the first of the uh, William Hurt and Kathleen Turner team ups. The these three folks would reunite later on for a um, small fave of mine called the Accidental Tourist. Um, mm-hmm. But I also remember this because this is probably like one of the sweatiest movies ever made mm-hmm. um, because this <laughs> yeah. is takes place during a Florida heat wave and William Hurt is this lawyer and he's in an affair with um, uh, Kathleen Turner. Um, it's also got a very early pre-Cheers Ted Danson in it. Hell yeah. Um, so that's very, this is like the year before Cheers starts. Um, Mickey Rourke is in it as well. Um, it's a, it's a very steamy, very down and dirty movie, which is also very surprising because Lawrence Kasdan almost immediately pivots away from this for stuff like the big chill and grand Canyon and stuff that I would say is very much more safe. Um, but this is kind of as wild and sensual as he would ever get in his unique filmography. And so I'll point that one out. I, uh, yeah, I, I want to tell a story really quickly, uh, about, uh, body heat. Uh, I, I was helping a couple of, uh, actors, um, like prepare a scene for a scholarship competition when I was, when I was like just after I graduated college and there, there was like, there was a little bit of sensuality between the two of them, but like, uh, you know, it kind of had to be that, that, that angry sensuality, that fighting sensuality. And I recommended, I was like, yeah, you want to kind of have the, that body heat energy. And one of the people who, the actors who was doing the scene, looked at me like, what is body heat? And I'm like, it's a movie from the 80s. And they, they were like, I was born in like, <laughs> you know, uh, the 1990s. I have no idea what body heat is. And I just, I, that was the moment where I was like, I'm I'm getting far too old for, for this. Uh, but yeah, it was just, it's one of those things that has always kind of stuck with me. Uh, and But I love body heat. And I want to rec, I, I also think it's a great movie to check out. I haven't seen it in a long time, but now that it's on the channel, uh, I think it's time for a rewatch. I'm going to keep the erotic thriller train ah. just chugging along here. Uh, and I'm going to go with a, I think it's another uh, directorial debut. Uh, and this is from Lana and Lily Wachowski. This mm. is the yep. awesome, uh, 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 I don't know if you would call it a heist movie, but I, I think it's a heist movie. Uh, it's a it's a double cross kind of movie. It is Bound, starring Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly. Uh, Jennifer Tilly is married to a gangster, uh, and she is, I believe the relationship is abusive. Um, she is, uh, in one way or another, she is unhappy in the relationship, uh, and she turns to this woman to kind of help her, uh, bump off the, uh, the, her mob boss husband, who is played by Joey, uh, Joe Panigliano, um, and the two women fall for each other. Uh, and it is just, it is a, uh, listen, it's listed in the erotic thrillers. So I'm telling you, it is a hot movie, uh, <laughs> but it's also just a really smart, like, uh, it, it insanely underrated thriller. Um, I just think this movie is fantastic films like gorgeously, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just, uh, it, it is a, a twisty, turny, like wonderful little crime movie. Uh, and it's awesome to see it on the criterion channel. It's one that I wish somewhere down the road would find its way into the criterion collection proper. Um, but yeah, this is a, a great movie and that's going to be my recommendation. Uh, yeah. Bound 
from uh, 1996. Uh, I believe mm-hmm. it was uh, an NC NC17 when it was released, or unrated when it was first released. There, there's 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 an unrated cut out there. Yes. Awesome, awesome. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be my recommendation. And I think, unless we have anything else, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Criterion Break. Uh, Derek, we'll start with you. Where can people find you online? Yes, you can find me on the Letterboxd under my username D-E-R-V Dude. That's Derv Dude on Letterboxd. Uh, you can find me under that same nom de plume on Instagram as well. You can find me on the Facebook as well. And that's pretty much it. Blake, where can people find you online? I'm also on Letterboxd uh, at the real John G. Awesome. Here comes the long spiel. You can find me on all social media under Fat Dude Digs Flicks. Just do a search for Fat Dude Digs Flicks and you will find me on Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Twitter, YouTube, even TikTok. Like I said, just do a search for Fat Dude Digs Flicks and you will find me there. Uh, subscribe to this podcast. Like this podcast. Rate and review this podcast. Share this podcast with your friends. Uh, we're going to keep doing this thing until we don't find it fun anymore. Uh, but man, it would sure be cool to have a bunch of listeners uh, join us on our criterion journey. And the best way to do that is to, if you're listening and you like what we do, share this with your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Good Pods. If you're using one of those uh, apps, please feel free to leave a rating and a review. If you do subscribe to this podcast, not only do you get the criterion break, but you also get let's talk about, which is an interview show where I am joined by a guest each week. And we talk about their life, their passions, and a movie that has had an impact on them. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, or would like to be a guest on either this show or let's talk about just send an email to fat dude digs flicks at gmail.com. Let's, let's have a conversation. Let's, let's, let's talk about it and try and get you on the show or just say, Hey, I like what you do. Or just say, Hey, I think you suck. You know, whatever you want to do, whatever, whatever you want to do. If you have a question, I'll even address it in an episode of the podcast. Um, if you are on Facebook and are in the South Dakota area or not, and just like to talk about movies, uh, please join the South Dakota film community group. Uh, lots of good conversations there. Uh, we're contributing ourselves anytime we can, uh, but just a great way to meet and talk to people about loving movies. That's it. That's, that's all she wrote. I got all of that out and only had to take like 20 breaths. So good job. Good job. <laughs> um, <laughs> who, Blake, you know what? Do you want to, do you want to do the goodbye this week? Of course, tell these of fine course. people. Yeah. Tell these fine people goodbye for us. Adios. You've been listening to the Criterion Break. Thank you for listening to Fat Dude